I would be lying to you this morning if I said I wasn't nervous. But uh, I think it's probably because my pride is in the way, and so I have been dealing with my heart this morning. But it is an absolute privilege to be able to communicate God's Word to you this morning. This morning we're going to be talking about don't waste your anger. Have you ever thought about wasting your anger? That is what we are going to be looking at this morning. And there's three things that I would like to say before we get going. And the first one is, I am not a anger management expert. I have been and still wrestle with being an angry man. So I am actually a fellow learner with you in this, if you have never considered this before. The second thing that I would like to communicate to you is when we talk about anger, what is it that we're understanding anger to be? I've read many definitions as I've been preparing to communicate God's word with you this morning, and there is one definition that I have found that I think will help us all understand what we are talking about when we mean anger, and it's by a pastor and an author and a real gift to evangelicals. His name is Tim Keller, and he says, Anger is this. Anger is an energy that is aroused in defense of something good and released on something evil. Anger is an energy that is aroused in defense of something good and released on something evil or against something evil. If you take that idea and you think of God, is his anger not aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil? The last thing I'd want to say to you this morning before we get going is this. It is easy when we're coming to a topic such as anger to be thinking, drats, I wish my wife was here. Or I wish my husband was here. Or I wish my son or my granny could hear this. But I would like to put to you this morning, if you could consider Psalms 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God. Search me and know my thoughts, know my ways, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, God is bothered and intentional with his children. And so as we begin to look at don't waste your anger, would God speak to us as individuals, and would we find hope, amazing scandalous hope. So would you pray with me as we begin to start looking at God's word? Gracious Heavenly Father, it is an absolute privilege to stand up here and to unfold your holy word. And so, Father, I need your grace and your help this morning, and I pray that you would bless the words that I've prepared, and I pray that you would bless the hearers, and would we learn something new, and more importantly, Father, Would we walk away from here knowing that we've met with you and that we have a greater understanding 
about anger. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 are really sort of the top, the, the, the um, scripture that we'll be looking at. But we're actually going to flip around our Bibles today because what we're doing this morning is we're looking topically at anger. But we're going to camp out here to start with. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Now it says here, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I want you to do me a favor and I want you to imagine... A Saturday afternoon when all the chores are done. The heater is going. Your favorite drink and your uh, favorite snacks are at hand. They're sitting there nicely on the table and it's about 2.30 in the afternoon and you're about to turn on the real footy, the Swans versus Collingwood. The game is quite significant because you actually have relatives that are going for both sides. And you're fairly confident that, you know what? We're going to get the win if you follow the swans. The ball bounces and the swans are off. And they are doing great. They're doing fairly fairly well and they're, they're up by a few goals. And you begin to relax and you think, you know what? We got this in the hand. During the middle of the first quarter, though, the phone rings. The phone rings and somebody wants to have a chat with me about something. Do they not realize that the football game is on and this is important? They begin to talk and I begin to try to hurry them off of the phone. I miss the end of the first quarter. I miss the break. It's into the second quarter. And I come back into the room and the swans are behind. And Collingwood is winning. I decide that I think I'll help spur the swans on by yelling at them through the TV. Not in a very helpful way, mind you, but in a way that, from what I understand and what I've been told, has made others feel uncomfortable. I mean, I didn't think it was wrong to yell, Kill them! Knock their heads off, you idiots! Smash their face in! It was that sort of thing that I was thinking would motivate the swans. And then I see my family looking at me, And instead of recognizing their discomfort, I uh, um, yell at them, snap at them, and say, Who ate all the snacks? It's not a really pretty scene, actually. Sadly, though, I noticed that the swans are still not responding to my yelling, and so I began to throw pillows at the TV. (laughs) 
The pillows don't seem to be doing it, so I grab some of the kids' toys and begin to throw those at the TV. And finally, in my anger and disgust, I take my boot off and throw it at the TV. Sad, eh? That was me eight or nine years ago. I was an angry man. Brothers and sisters, this morning I have three points for you if you're taking notes. And the first one is, there is some anger that ought not be among us. There is some anger that ought not be among us. Secondly, there is an anger that ought, though, to be cultivated among us. There is an anger that ought to be cultivated among us. And my third point for us this morning is, uh uh-oh, I'm angry, but... Here in Ephesians chapter 4... In, the first, in verse 17, Paul begins to describe the new life that Christians are experiencing in Christ. They've put off the old self and, and they're putting on the new life. And then in verses 25 to 32, Paul is providing examples of ways in which Christians can build up Christ's body. One of the ways that we can build up the body of Christ is not to sin in our anger. It says here in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Probably a better interpretation of that is in your anger, don't sin. Paul writes, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down and don't give the devil a foothold. Now Paul's a preacher and he's a pastor. And I think these words are very pastorally written to the Ephesians. Do you know why? Because he knows the way that people are. Middle Eastern people are very passionate people. They're emotional people. They get excited about things. And they like to voice when they're not being treated fairly. They will voice it if they don't like it. And some of the things that are happening in Ephesus, or they will be experiencing as Christians, they will be unjust. They won't be fair and they won't be right. And Paul is encouraging the church. The anger that ought not be among you is sinful. Don't let your anger be sinful. And we're going to look at this a bit more in a second. But this type of anger, it leads to murder and it leads to hatred. Paul also says that the anger that ought not be among us is the anger that the sun is going down on. Now this one's a bit tricky. And the reason it's tricky is because some of us take everything in God's word very literally. And in this section here, or in these words here, it's a temptation to take that very literal. In the um, art of marriage thing that we had a few weeks back, I shared with those that were at the art of marriage that I took this very literal. And when we were first married, I would not let Meg go to bed if, we, if, if, if there was things that were unresolved, I would pull the blankets up. We can't let the sun go down on our anger. I don't think that what Paul is saying though here. I believe what Paul is cautioning here is that we don't hold on to our anger. We can hold on to anger when you think about it. We can hold on to anger and we feed the things that have happened and we replay and we rehearse and we re-go around and around in our heads as to what has taken place. 
And if we choose to do that, we can stray off into a sinful and to a selfish resentment. And Paul is cautioning us in that. And finally, Paul writes about not giving Satan a foothold or giving him an opportunity. Imagine the situation where something has happened and it's clearly wrong. But before you know it, the story has been enhanced and exaggerated and nobody knows the actual truth of the events now, but everybody's angry. Injustices have happened, but the enemy will have a clear heyday with regards to the situation. And the reason the enemy can have a heyday is because there is a fine line of righteous anger and not traveling into a human anger. It's very important, so don't give him an opportunity. It seems as though there is an anger here from Ephesians that ought to be cultivated, but clearly there is an anger that is not to be among us. But here's the question though, what is the anger that ought not be among us? At the beginning of this amazing redemptive book that you and I have the privilege of holding, there is an incredible account that we learn right at the beginning in Genesis. And it's in Genesis chapter 4 that we learn about a guy by the name of Cain. Cain is angry with his brother. And what does he do? He kills him. That human anger that we can see in Cain is usually seen as sinful anger. Now Cain could have been turned to good if he would have repented and offered the acceptable sacrifice that God had wanted. But instead, what he does is he nurses his anger and he ends up killing his brother. How often can that happen to us? How often can that type of anger happen within our own hearts? We get rejected or we get angry and then we get angry. We nurse our wounds and we nurse our, nurse our hurts and our irritation. And it only puts fuel on the fire in our hearts. That ought not to be among us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, we read, You have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, human anger, human anger, typically desires to hurt. Human anger typically desires to wound and to damage and to ruin or destroy another person. And they want to do that in a personal way. Even calling someone a fool, you are liable to the hell of fire. Those are Jesus' words. And why? Because you are destructively attacking someone's character and their identity. 
And for Jesus, if you do that, when you attack a person in such a way, you're going to give an account. You know, throughout Scripture we read about anger. And and anger often leads to things like murder, hatred, stirring up strife, backbiting. Human anger is very destructive. And it does not bring about the righteousness that God requires. Think with me for a moment about our own society. We have adults in the workplace who are bullied. We have kids in school who are being bullied. Endless amounts of road rage. In fact, just the other day, Noah and I were in the car park and we got an earful. Road rage. People yelling and screaming at one another. Did you know things like swearing and grumbling and complaining? Those are all symptoms of anger, human anger. You could even um, see this anger rearing its ugly head in fits of jealousy or cynicism, perhaps even in indifference. Friends, we live in an angry society, but what is this anger telling us? If you would turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 sheds some light on human anger. Let me read these first three verses to you. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You know, I like to get together with my kids and I like to ask them about how things are going. And I try to do it at a minimum once a month. But more often than that, I like to get together with my kids. We've got seven of them, so we've got to keep track of them. But we want to get together with them and we want to find out how they're interpreting things, how they're processing things. And so one of my favorite questions to ask my kids is, hey, what are you observing about dad? Now sometimes you've got to brace yourself because they haven't missed things that you'd hoped they'd missed. And what are, you, what are you noticing about how mom and dad are speaking to one another? How are you doing with your brothers and sisters? And you know, as you begin to talk to your kids and as they begin to explain to you what's been going on in their world and how things have been happening and sort of some of the conflicts that they have been in with a sibling or with mom or I, it's a wonderful opportunity then to take them to James chapter 4 to help them see something really, really, really significant. It's in these words in James that I think we can miss what is going on. It says that the problem isn't your sister. The problem isn't the Legos. The problem isn't the we, sweetheart. You're fighting with your brother and sister because why? Something inside of you. Verse 1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your passions, are at war within you? You see, human anger exposes something very, very disturbing. Human anger exposes something about me. 
It exposes something about you. Have you ever thought about that? Human anger exposing something about yourself? James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You know, the Bible, Paul Tripp says, is a very awesome diagnostic. It diagnoses our hearts so well. Our anger reveals what's going on inside of us. My anger reveals something about me. I want the swans to win. That is a desire that is inside of me. And so when they're not giving me my desire, I'm carrying on like a lunatic. Don't laugh, honey. That's not nice. (laughs) Paul Tripp asks a great question and he says, Who talks to you about your desires more than anyone else? Who talks to you about your own desires? Isn't it you? I deserve for the swans to win. I deserve not to have my phone ring in the first quarter of the most important swans game of the season. I deserve that my wife has my favorite drinks and my favorite snacks on tap. I deserve that my kids will shut up and leave me alone so I can watch the football. That's what I deserve, I tell myself. That's my passion, that's my desire. But what is that revealing about me? To be honest, friend, the stark reality is, the sad reality is, is I have a war that's going on inside of me. And that war is, I know that I'm not supposed to be angry about those things. I want what I want. But are those the things that God wants? Are those the things that I'm supposed to be getting angry about? Is that what my desires are supposed to be about? I don't think so. Friends, there is an anger that ought not be among us. Our human anger can sometimes lead us to do things we ought not do. But there is an anger that we need to cultivate. If you flick over to James chapter 1, I want to show you verses 19 and 20 and read these to you. There is an anger that we need to cultivate. And it says, James is saying here, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. What does God require? What does God get angry about? Let's talk about the anger that God exercises. What are the things that we see God angry about? You know, we see throughout Scripture that God's anger is against the following things. Now, I'm not going to give you all the verses and stuff, but this is what God's anger is against. His anger is against the wicked. His anger is against those who forsake Him. His anger is against those who continue in unbelief. 
His anger is against apostasy. That's false teachers, false prophets. His anger is against idolaters. His anger, get this, is even in the saints, but it is always exhibited with mercy. That is what God is angry about. Are we angry like God when the wicked are prevailing? Are we angry in instances where human slavery and trafficking and oppression of the poor are overlooked or where sexual immorality is acceptable? What about the persecution of the saints at the hands of wicked men as well as the killing of innocent lives? Do those things anger us as they do God? Here is where it seems as though another anger among believers ought to be cultivated. We as Christians get a bit scared when those things happen. Yeah, some of us might say, you know what, I am angry. I don't know what to do though. Have you you ever considered with me, have you ever considered, excuse me, how God exercises His anger? Here's what I found. And this is is what I want to pull the curtains back on for you this morning. And that is that God always exercises His anger perfectly. Can I say that again? God always exercises His anger in absolute perfection. And when He does, when God exercises His anger, it is first of all slow. I want you to picture with me for a moment... Moses, leading all those people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. This people are stubborn, stiff-necked, and he wants to see God. He wants to see God. And God says, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to walk by. You can't see me, but I'll see my back. And Moses records, this is what he sees and hears as God Almighty walks past. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Wow. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. In Numbers 14, 18, God is slow to anger. In Nahum 1, 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God's anger is slow. God's anger is also righteous. In Psalm 7, 6 and 11, we read this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. Do you understand that God's anger is righteous? So what this means is, 
is that he is righteous and he's a judge and the things that tick him off, the things that get God angry are this. Meanness, injustice, weakness, wickedness, excuse me, and misconduct. It is, he is righteously angry about those things. Righteously. Not only is God's anger slow and righteous, it is aggravated. It is provoked. Children of Israel have said and made a covenant with God, we will be your people, you will be our God. Idols are made, they worship, they abandon Him. He's provoked. He's provoked by their disobedience. There is a con- God's anger is aggravated. It is provoked. Something else I want you to think about with God's anger is that it is also turned away. This is just so exciting to me because it's scandalous grace here. God's anger that you and I rightfully deserve is turned away and it's turned away three ways. It's turned away by Christ. God's righteous, holy wrath, as Jesse was just describing, was poured out on Christ so that you and I, with boldness and confidence, could go into His presence unashamed and cry out for mercy. And He sees us as perfect because of what Jesus has done. That is scandalous. But God's anger has been turned away on Christ so that you and I could be at peace with God. Not only has it been turned away on Christ, but secondly, it has been turned away upon confession of sin and repentance. I want you to think about that with me for a second. The last time I had the privilege excuse me, of speaking to you was on the story that I love about the prodigal son. And do you remember how the son said, Dad, get away. I want to go off. Rolling with the pigs. Has an epiphany. I've sinned against my father. I'm going to go home and say I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Dad is watching. And he sees his boy. And he picks up his skirt and he runs through town, taking all the shame so that he could welcome his son back home. That is God's anger. It's turned away when people are confessing and repenting. That is scandalous. Mercy and grace. And last week, in the last four weeks, we've been looking at Jonah. There was a people that God wanted to hear a message. Jonah, he finally got there told the message and the king and all the people repent and turn and they believe God's anger was turned God's anger is slow it's righteous it's aggravated it's turned away by Christ repentance confession for all that will believe. And it's fueled, my friends, and this is the most important thing. 
It is fueled by love. Paul Tripp says you cannot separate God's anger from God's love. You cannot separate, my friend, God's anger from God's love. Now the reason he is angry is because he loves. Think with me for a moment about a God who is not angered by injustice or prejudices or war or violence or falsehood. What sort of God is that? Our Heavenly Father is angry. So we too will become angry when those things are happening. What sort of a parent is going to turn away from a child who's being bullied, who's abandoned, who's crying out for help? Who's going to turn away from a child who's crying because they've been lied to? They're being made fun of. You feel angry, moms and dads? Good. Don't sin. I want you to think with me for a moment where God's perfect anger, and you'll have to excuse me, where God's perfect anger and where God's perfect love meet. Where do you think in all of history have God's perfect anger and God's perfect love met? Can I take you to a hill called Calvary? There on Calvary's hill, Jesus, the Son of God, is beaten, bloodied, bruised, while naked, crown of thorns on his head's head, nailed to a tree at the hands of angry men. He's spat upon, insults are being hurled at him. He is receiving God's full anger and wrath. And all the while, while his son is receiving that, it is driven by perfect love. This anger is perfect, and yet it is driven by love. Brothers and sisters, I want to present to you this morning, there is an anger that is perfect, and it is God's anger. And I want you to be amazed, and I want you to be dazzled, and I want you to be sobered, and I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to ponder this through the week. I want you to linger through this throughout the week. God's anger is perfectly driven in perfect love. And God's anger, my friend, please hear this, God's anger will never be unleashed in an unholy way, ever, because He is perfect. And so, friends, it is this morning that I submit to you that there is an anger that ought not be practiced among us. And there is an anger that ought to be cultivated among us. The anger that ought to not be among us is driven by our own human passions and our own human desires that don't align with Almighty God. 
the anger that God pours out is driven in, by perfect love. Is your anger driven by love? Or is your anger but for the love of God? Or is your anger driven by your own selfish passions and desires? If you are like me, you could be thinking, uh-oh, I think I'm angry for the right reasons. I think. Or, uh-oh, I'm angry, but they aren't for the right reasons. Friends, no matter where you sit this morning, I want to give you three ideas to tease out for discussion with your loved ones, with your life group leader, with your pastor. If you are feeling that you are angry either side, for the right reason or for the wrong reason, I want to suggest to you that you do three things that you question, that you admit, and that you rehearse. You question, what am I angry about? Am I angry about the things of God or am I angry because my own desires and my own passions aren't being met? If you are a person who says, you know what, I recognize that my anger is for the wrong reasons. It is for my passions and it is for my desires. I wanted to tell you, brother, you and sister, you are not alone. Paul Tripp writes in his book, Broken Down House, these fantastic words. It says, in an everyday experience, a bit of source, it's a bit of a source of embarrassment. It is more of a theme than I would care to admit. It's revealed in moments of low-grade irritation, grumbling, impatience, quickly expressed complaints, argumentative responses, looks of dissatisfaction. I'm angry. No, not because my world is broken. No, not because injustice exists. No, not because prejudice still lives. No, not because war and violence destroys lives and communities. No, not because falsehood gets wider hearing than truth. No, not because of the suffering that is all around me. No, I'm angry because I want to be in control. I'm angry because I want things my way and things get in my way. So I cry out for your help. I seek your rescue that I would no longer be angry for the wrong reasons, but that I would be good and angry at the same time. Cry out for help if you are finding yourself angry and you're questioning, I'm not angry about the right thing. Now say that you are angry because there has been injustice or something is wrong. And I would say then this is what we ought to do in that situation. After you've questioned, pray. Pray for that person. Pray for that situation. Pray for that committee, that government, that army, that union, that company, that family, that neighbor. Pray for them. After you've questioned it, admit it. Admit that, yes, I have been angry. Yes, I'm angry about the things that God is angry about. But ask the Lord what He wants you to do. And if you aren't sure, perhaps you speak to your life group leader or your pastor or a brother or sister in Christ so that they can help you, that your anger doesn't turn into giving the devil a foothold. But admit it. If you're not angry about the things of God and you recognize I'm angry but they're not about the things of God, you need to admit it. I was a very, very young 
uh, angry young boy and I took that into adulthood. But I also excused it. I denied it. I justified it. I never admitted it. And I needed to admit that I am angry. In fact, I was very angry with my parents and my father had identified that I was a very young, uh, angry man and he sent me an email with this story on it. Sadly, I responded in anger, but hopefully you won't. There once was a little boy who had a bad temper, the email said, and his father gave him a bag of nails and told him that every time he lost his temper, then to drive that nail, drive a nail into the fence. On the first day, the boy had driven 37 nails into the fence. And over the next few weeks, as he learned to control his anger, the number of nails hammered daily gradually dwindled down. He discovered it was easier to hold his temper than to drive those nails into the fence. Finally, the day came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all, and he told his dad all about it. And his father suggested now instead that the boy pull out a nail each day that he was able to hold his temper. The days passed and the young boy was finally able to tell his father, father that the nails were all gone. And the father took his son by the hand and led him to the fence and he said, You've done well, my son. But I want you to have a look at the holes in the fence. This fence will never be the same, son. When you say things in anger, they leave a scar just like this one. You can put a a knife in a man's son and draw it out. And it won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, there is a wound there. The little boy then understood how powerful his words were. He looked up at his daddy and he said, Daddy, will you forgive me for the holes that I have put in you? And the daddy said, of course I will, son. You see, admitting your anger and repenting, it turns God's anger away. It turns God's anger away. That is scandalous and that is amazing that God would forgive us. So after you've questioned and after you've admitted, I think the last thing to do is to rehearse. We need to rehearse and remind ourselves of the truth. And there's two things that I would like to put to you this morning that you rehearse that you rehearse the truth of God's anger versus your human anger. Because you see, God's anger is slow and it's righteous. It is provoked. It is turned away and it's turned away on Christ and to those who confess and repent and to those who believe. And God's anger is fueled by love. Is that your anger? Rehearse the fact that I need forgiveness, Lord. In Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, it says this at the conclusion of that section that we read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slammer be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Remember where God's anger and God's love collided? That was for you and I that we would be dazzled by His holy anger and not waste our anger on our own passions and desires, but that we would be angry about what He died for. Friends, there is an anger that ought not be practiced among us and there is an anger that ought to be cultivated among us. How would the Holy Spirit desire for you to respond? 
Do you need to repent of wrongful anger? Do you actually need to repent that you're not angry about the things that God's angry about? Because we are called to be angry about the things that God is angry about. You know, this morning, as I was praying in preparation for this, I think there's something that I missed out. God gives us clear instructions about what we are called to do as Christians. You see, we're instructed, beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, brothers and sisters, if your enemy hurts you, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Friends, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is his, and he will repay. Is that not good news? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word, which is holy and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit that can speak through your word. And I pray, Lord, for us as a church that we would be angry about the things that you were angry about. And Lord, that the war that wages within us, we would recognize that war that's going on and that we would humble ourselves that we would get with a brother or sister and ask them to help us through this time Lord we don't want to give the enemy a foothold we want to be slow to anger as you are slow to anger we, want to, we don't want to hold on to anger Lord but Lord we long for the day when you will repay and all things will be made right and you will be high and lifted up and exalted and we will join with the angels that cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.